Hear now God's word. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it today to us by his Holy Spirit. Do you know what happened 403 years ago yesterday? Maybe you're a history guru. What would that be? 403 years, 16, 18. History buffs will maybe remember from 1618 to 1648 was the 30 years war. Interestingly, the remonstrants, the followers of Jacob Arminius, wanted to make peace with the Spanish. They were seen in that way as somewhat treasonous. A lot's going on in this era of history. November 13, 1618, however, the Synod of Dort began. It continued until May of the next year. They met in Dortrecht, Holland. In addition to the Dutch, there were delegates from eight other foreign nations. Some delegates were invited from the new state of Brandenburg, Prussia. Wouldn't that be an interesting time to live? They didn't come. There was a whole row of empty chairs, kind of like this in front. (laughs) And they were in honor of the French, who were invited to come, but forbidden to attend because the Roman Catholic authorities wouldn't allow it. Why does this matter? Because at this synod, which means a gathering internationally of the greatest amount of international Reformed churches ever assembled, they defended the doctrines of grace. You may have heard of them as the five points of Calvinism. That might be a bad thought in your mind. If it is, I want you to see, as together we look at the scriptures, that this means God saves sinners from first to last. You can't reject one of these points without in some way the others unraveling. Is this just for our heads? No, it's for our hearts. One of the great discoveries that God brought about in the Reformation was a renewal of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. 
and the importance of the Holy Spirit to bring us to Christ and Christ to us. That the sin of intellectualism and doctrinalism is a sin that really means we, we can't just love doctrine and say that we don't love our family. See, see the, the importance of this for all of life. And today we look at the third of the five points. We want to pray God will give us a warm heart and a head that is intellectually renewed by the Spirit. This third point is sometimes called limited atonement. I want you to kind of move that out of your head. It fits because of TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. But the L and limited kind of throws us off a bit. Think definite redemption. And think about these two questions. What did Christ's death accomplish? And then secondly, for whom did Christ die? First, what did this death of Jesus accomplish? There's danger all around us. There's danger within us. The news thrives on that. They want you to keep coming back to hear about more bad news. But Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And Jesus there is talking about God. God is holy, holy, holy. God is dangerous. God is good, but he's not safe. He's a consuming fire, and we are sinful. Our biggest problem is sin. That's our condition. Since the fall of Adam, we are born with an evil heart. Sin is an offense against a holy God. It's not just a bad behavior that needs to be reformed. It's a condition that we can't save ourselves from. It incurs a penalty that a just and righteous God must execute. Death results from sin, and sin is defined, Michael Horton says, by the law. It's the law sentence that must be reversed if we are to share an everlasting life. The legal issue must be resolved if the symptoms of the curse are to be lifted. Sin separates me from God. But the good news is Jesus came to die for sinners like us. That is the best news possible. He came to deal with our sins, as we heard in 1 Peter 3, as the righteous for the unrighteous. He is truly God and truly man. He had to be God because only God could save us. He had to be man because man sins. God's justice requires that a human be punished for the sins of a human. We can't overlook that. Because the Father is just, the Father won't let an innocent man suffer and die, would he? That would be unjust. So Jesus suffered then on behalf of sinners. He suffered for your sins. He lived the life we should have lived but didn't. He died the death we deserved to die. And atonement is similar to reconciliation. To make at one those who formerly were at odds. That's what we're talking about today, the atonement. 
It has to do with sacrifice for sins. In the old covenant, kids, animal after animal would have to be brought to be shed. Blood continually flowing all around and in the temple. Jesus is made like us to be that faithful high priest who is both priest and sacrifice that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, Hebrews 2. He died a death that we refer to as penal substitutionary. Big word. Penal, kids, means penalty. He paid the penalty for our sins because God's holy justice requires payment of the debt incurred against his holy law. Substitutionary. Someone else, Jesus, the God-man, bears the sanctions, the curses of this law in our place, taking the wrath and judgment and sin that I deserve, bearing it for me on the cross. That's the only way God can be just and the justifier of sinners. This is called the great exchange. Our sin, which we receive from Adam, imputed to us, is now imputed to Christ. He takes that sin on the cross. Atonement deals with that guilt. But not only that, Jesus himself achieved a perfect righteousness for us so that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of Almighty God. We're not only saved from the guilt of sin then, Justification raises us upright in God's presence with Christ's righteousness imputed to us, credited to us, giving us positive standing before a holy God so we're forgiven and we're righteous and we're holy and we're pleasing to God for the sake of Jesus today. That is good news for us. If you're tempted to self-pity or discouragement or despair, in your sorrow, in your suffering, God is pleased with you as you trust in Jesus by faith for Christ's sake. The the death of Christ is vicarious substitution. Big word, meaning it addresses the objective problem of guilt before a holy God. He undoes Adam's sin. He cancels our debt. He conquers the powers of evil and darkness and Satan himself, crushing the head of the serpent, Colossians 2. He upholds the justice of God and the love of God is poured out to you. This is not love against justice. We cannot understand the love at the cross until we recognize that God sent his son in love to be the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sin. What else happened at the cross? Death was not the fate of Jesus. It was his deed. He grasped it. As Murray said, death was his triumphal act. Never was he more victorious than on the cross. The father gave the son to death. The son gave himself, John 10. But he didn't stay dead. The father raised the son. The son would take his own life up again, and he's raised, 1 Peter 3, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did this to bring you to God. 
so that we approach God because Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant, the new covenant in his blood. Because unlike all those animals, as Hebrews 9 says, Jesus entered once into the holy places. Not through the blood of animals, but by his own blood. Once meaning never again would this have to happen. When he died, Jesus says, it is finished. No further payment needed. The righteous one suffered for unrighteous sinners on the cross. It's paid in full. Jesus entered into the most holy place, meaning through his blood, he enters the holy of holies in heaven itself. Blood meaning atonement through substitution. Meaning his life is terminated as a punishment for sin at the requirement of a holy God. The result of this is an eternal redemption. So this is the language of the gospel, loved ones. That's why these things matter. These are essential truths. Not only is it substitutionary, but Jesus on the cross secured an eternal redemption. What does that word mean? In the ancient world, it would be used to refer to a person who might sell themselves into slavery to pay off a debt of sin. Uh, Off a debt, I'm sorry. A relative then might pay money to buy them out of slavery, and they'd pay that to a temple god. This term redemption was used in the ancient world. So for us, it means we've been bought with a price, bought out of slavery to sin through the blood of Jesus himself. Why does this matter for you? Because here's Phil Riken. Imagine this. A friend is in trouble. They're in jail. Their bail is set. They have no money. You go down and you pay the bail money. You come back and your wife says to you, where's your friend? You said, well, I left him in jail. Left him in jail? She would say, didn't you pay money to redeem him? What kind of redemption would it be if someone was still in jail? They wouldn't be free, would they? When it says Jesus redeemed us by his death, it's effective. Those who have been redeemed, Christians, actually benefit from it. It didn't just make salvation possible for you. It secures it. It's not that salvation is a, a, I hope for, I wish for. It's a tulip, not a daisy. It's not, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. No, it's secure. Eternal redemption, propitiation. Meaning, wrath-appeasing sacrifice. If you see on your outline on page four. This is the language of the atonement. In the Old Testament, there's an Ark of the Covenant. On the top of the ark is the mercy seat. That mercy seat is the word that the New Testament translates propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation, meaning pro, for you, on your side, propitious, favorable. So in love, the Father sent the Son to bear the wrath and judgment we deserve. Not to divert this judgment, but it's poured out on the Son. And if it's paid once, it can't be brought up again. Here's Riken again with the law court. Even in human law, there's a principle that a crime cannot be punished twice. 
double jeopardy, right? Multiple, multiple penalty. If a person is sentenced to 10 years in prison, they serve their time, they're entitled to go out. No one can send them back to prison to make them pay again for the crime. The same is true with God, propitiation. God doesn't punish a sin twice. If sin is actually punished in the person of Christ who died for it, God cannot come back and get you for it. This is a triune redemption. The Father, Romans 3, put forward the Son as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The Holy Spirit grants you that faith to believe. So the question now is, that's what Christ did. For whom, secondly, did he die? Someone might say, well, he died for the whole world. He died for everyone, right? It's not that simple. What was the father's intent to send his son to die on the cross? John Owen said, there's only three options, aren't there? Either Jesus died for all the sins of all people, universalism, or he died, secondly, for some of the sins of all people. That would be historic Arminianism, which the canons of Dort was meeting to respond to. The Arminian would say Jesus did not die for the sin of unbelief. Please note, the Arminian, we are saying, is not not a Christian. Please know that. This is an error. So we're not saying Arminianism is full-out heresy. Please hear that. Third, Jesus died for all the sins of some people. The first few, universalism, you can see on your outline on page four. Everyone is saved, they say. Is that true? No. The Bible says some specific individuals are lost. Pharaoh, we saw that last week. Judas would be another. Anyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 20. So that would be heretical, meaning false teaching outside Christian orthodoxy. Within orthodox Christianity, the most common view is indefinite atonement, even if someone hasn't heard of Arminianism, meaning Christ died for some of the sins of all people. It's December 16, 18. You're at this synod. You've been there a month. You've been at meetings before, and you're tired. It's been going on a month, and you're not even close to being done. Someone gets up, a man named Martin. He expresses his Arminian opinions. This is a true story. On the atonement, he says, Jesus on the cross made all people redeemable. Francis Gomaris is so upset, he challenges Martin to a duel. No joke, with swords. The presiding president tries to calm things down. He says, we need a time of prayer. They go to a time of prayer. After the season of prayer is up, Gomaris stands up and reissues his demand for a duel. <laughs> you can't make this up. Who said church history is boring? Thankfully, they did not fight to the death but they did continue to spar verbally in the debate. It's a very funny story. It's also a picture of how theology can go bad in its application, like really bad. I'm thinking Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox. Anyway, never mind. Remember that scene, Back to the Future 3, the duel? Forget it, sorry. 
we need to be gentle in how we explain these things, lovingly in the substance in which we explain it. The Armenian theology, in their own words, says Christ's death did not save actually or potentially. It makes all people savable. Seven years after Dort ended, 1625, several hundred Arminians, remonstrants, converted to Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic view on the atonement is much the same as the Armenian view. A more man-centered, medieval-type system. Do what lies within you. It's what we're all born thinking. Heaven helps those who help themselves. Frank Sinatra sang it. I did it my way. By nature, loved ones, we are all blind to grace. All of us. Nicodemus talking to Jesus about being born again. He says, how can a man do it? How can I do it? Just give me something. Just tell me and I'll do it. Blind to grace. The Armenian view is what's called a governmental moral view, meaning the focus is on the effect in us that the atonement brings us to faith and repentance. Now, that's true. It is bringing us to faith and repentance. But our faith and repentance is the basis of God's acceptance, they say. The bad news is not that bad. God's justice, they say, does not require perfect fulfillment of the law. But the good news is not as good. Instead of the announcement that Christ has fulfilled all righteousness and borne our judgment, the message is we can be saved by less strenuous obedience. We're not saved by our obedience, remember. It's Christ's. So in the Armenian view, salvation is like God throwing out a life preserver. You have to grab one. Do you see the problem with the lack of assurance there? The third view, Amaraldianism. I question, should I bring this up? Here's why. 17th century, French theologian. The atonement is universal, he says, Amiro, but no one would accept it. So God elected some to whom it would be applied. Salvation is universal at accomplishment, particular at application. Why is this important? Because there's a lot of people today who will say, I'm a four-point Calvinist. You heard that? This is what they are. We love them. We're not saying they're outside of Christ, but we need to know what this is saying. Historical, confessional, historic Lutheranism would often say this. Not everyone, but this is kind of the mode that they're operating under, just so you know, even if someone's not aware of it. Here's the question. What did God intend in sending Christ to die? Did Jesus redeem anyone? Did his sacrifice make a true propitiation for our sins? Was it an actual atonement? Definite redemption is the view of, we believe, the Bible and historic Reformed theology that says that God the Father designed the work of redemption with a view to providing salvation for the elect. That Jesus died for his sheep, those the Father had given him. That the atonement is sufficient for all. There's no lack of power in it, but efficient for the elect. The Father elects a people. The Son represents those the Father gave him. He died for them. The Holy Spirit applies this to them. He paid it all. We just sang that. Unless someone is a universalist, they will say the atonement has to be limited in some way, right? 
either limited in its effects, the Arminian view, Christ died for all, but not all get saved, or limited in its scope, which we believe Reformed theology to teach rightly. Christ did not die for all, but for those for whom he died, they will be saved. Here's a picture of this. Picture two bridges. One big, wide bridge that goes 75% away of the way across a river. The other, a narrow bridge that completely crosses the river. We may or may not have taken a wrong turn on our summer trip this last year. We're in the Smoky Mountains. Do you look at Google Maps or do you look at the Atlas? We went around, we get to a bridge that's only a certain length wide, and we have a trailer. Are we going to make it across? It's narrow, but it goes across. Thankfully, we did. We're still here. But you want a bridge that gets all the way across, even if it's narrow. The reform position is the narrow way of the cross reaches all the way to salvation, not that it just gets part way across. For whom did Christ die? Look at John 10. What does Jesus call himself? The good shepherd, John 10. What does Jesus call those who follow him and hear his voice? His sheep. What noise do sheep make, kids? Bah, you can say it, right? You're still with me? Sheep make lots of noises, and they smell, and they're silly, and they go their own way. That's us. We are all sheep that by nature go our own way. Who gives the sheep to Jesus? John 10. The Father. Who does Jesus die for? The sheep. His people. The church. Not the goats. He dies, John 15, for his friends. Acts 20, for his church. Ephesians 5, for his bride. What then would you say about a text like 1 John? There's challenging texts. We don't want to avoid them. We're not going to cover them all today. 1 John 2, 2. Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Tough text, right? What would you say about that? Did Jesus die for the sins of the whole world? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right? Well, what does world mean? You might say, the whole world watched the Olympics. Or, I went outside, God's world is amazing. Or, like we read in John 12, the whole world went after Jesus. That's the Pharisees saying that. Does that mean every last person who's ever lived? If 1 John 2, 2 means every last person who's ever lived we would have to be universalists. Why? Because Jesus is the propitiation, which is not making salvation possible, but accomplishing it. God's love drives his propitiation of Christ. Jesus didn't divert the wrath of God. He absorbed it. It was spent God's wrath is turned away. So it's not just making it possible that someone's saved. It's accomplishing it. So what does world mean? Context determines it, right? We'll come back to that in a minute. The good news of the gospel, here's the focus, goes back to cover God's people in the Old Testament who trusted in the Savior to come. It goes forward to all of God's people who have not yet been born. It's good news for you who trust in Jesus today. It crosses across nations, races, ethnic groups, and cultures. 
It's not a potential salvation. It's for all without distinction, not all without exception. Meaning, all peoples, all tribes, all nations, at all times, that are God's elect. So there's not just a limited focus to one people who live in one time, in one place in history. The kingdom, Revelation 5, 9, is filled with those ransomed from all different peoples, smashing any notion of racial superiority because all people stand in in need of the same Savior. All of us. This is a message that is to be shared, that is to be lovingly shared. D.A. Carson, a pastor, tells a story of a Christian medical doctor. He's in a Muslim country. A woman comes to him with her nine-year-old son who has a gash on his calf. The doctor cleaned him up. She said, I wish someone would clean up my dirty heart. What would you say if you're the doctor? Would you say, your problem is you're a Muslim. What's wrong with you? No. We wouldn't talk that way. What he said is, I know what you mean. My heart was filthy, and one day someone came and cleaned it up like I'm cleaning up this boy's leg. Do you want me to tell you how this happened? Through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He told her, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. Jesus came to die for sinners. The gospel is preached universally. We don't go to anyone and say, I know you're elect, therefore Christ died for you. We say, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Jesus died for sinners. If you would be saved, repent of your sin and trust in him. Here's an analogy of how this ties in with election. Picture a door. Revelation 22 is written on the top. Whoever will may come. The free universal offer of the gospel is that the message of salvation is for every man, woman, and child who will come to the cross and believe and enter into eternal life. It goes out to all. On that same door as you enter, you turn around and you look. What does it say on the other side? Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Election is understood in hindsight. After coming to Christ, one can know I'm chosen in Christ. This matters. Here's Michael Horton. Maybe you've had these conversations. Maybe you're struggling with this today. Maybe you're saying, am I elect? Michael Horton talks of his dad who talked to him once and said, I don't get this election stuff. Am I elect? What would you do if you're struggling? What would you do if your kids or someone you love says, I don't know, I'm I'm struggling? What would you do? Michael Horton took him to John 10. That's where we go, isn't it? The Bible? John 10, 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He said to his dad, have you heard his voice? Have you followed him? His dad said, yes. He then said, this is Jesus' answer to you in the next verse. Keep reading. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
on reading the word of God, he said his dad's countenance changed. He saw this is a marvelous comfort, a life-changing moment. It's for your assurance of salvation, Christian. We all tend to be legalistic, to focus on our performance, to beat ourselves up, and to think, how can I be saved? If salvation is only made possible, that's not good news. That's saying you have to finish it. You have to do your part, and you can never know then, am I saved? We waver, all of us. We stumble, we struggle, we doubt, we screw things up. An unnamed little girl was talking to her grandparents one day, and her grandpa did something kind of silly, and she said, Grandpa screwed it up again. <laughs> By nature, we do that. We don't have the Midas touch, where we touch it and it turns to gold. The gospel, loved ones, is for weak, foolish sinners like us who screw things up, who need a Savior. God is more willing to forgive you, dear Christian, of that sin than you and I are willing to repent of it. God is more ready to forgive you than you and I are willing to let go of the sin that we're afraid that we will be condemned for. I got a message today from someone. I fear, he said, I've said and done too many bad things to be saved. Dear Christian, maybe you have a dark past where you think God could never forgive me of this sin. Even that sin you fear rejection for, if you turn to Jesus in faith, Jesus has promised all the forgiveness you will ever need by his accomplishment of his atoning death for you. Christ's advocacy for you is way greater than your failures. Maybe even last night and today. We are not those who have it all together. We are sinners saved by grace. Jesus You helped me yesterday. Will you help me today? Yes, he will. Will you help me tomorrow? Yes, he will. Will you help me on my best day when I think everything's great? Those perhaps are the most dangerous days where we think, I'm fine. He'll help you on that day. Will you help me on my worst day? Yes, he will. He has. He will. And you can trust in that promise. This is for your assurance Jesus says, I will gather all my elect from the whole earth. I will answer their cries. I love them. I will preserve them. I will not let them go. I know them by name. Do you know that Jesus knows his sheep by name? Each one of you. You're not just a general mass of humanity. One pastor speaks of lambs in a certain place that are raised for meat. He says, as we grew up and we had lambs raised for meat, my mom said, you don't name an animal that's destined for the kitchen table. But in the ancient East, most sheep were raised for wool. And they were named. The shepherd would name them. The shepherd knew them. He knew their smell. He knew their appearance. He knew those who were weak those who are sick, those who are wandering off. And so it is with Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep. He knows your needs today. He knows your fears. He knows your struggles by name. 
When he died on the cross, your names were written on his hands. He cares for you. He's with you. You might think, no one knows what I'm going through. No one can relate. Jesus can. He does. He was tested and tempted and tried in every way, yet without sin. When you stumble and sin, you're tempted to think, God doesn't love me anymore. That's not true. When you're wandering and doubting, Jesus will hold you, dear Christian, even when our hold on him feels very weak and frail. You, his people, are never out of his mind. He never forgets about you. He never kind of dismisses you. He never speaks a belittling, harsh word to you. He cares for you. And our Father disciplines us, yes. Even that's for our good. It's not to bring down the hammer and crush you. It's to bring us to repentance and to see again the beauty of Jesus. What a kind Heavenly Father we have. The Father himself loves you. The Son loves you. The Holy Spirit loves you. When you struggle, maybe with being too hard on yourself, maybe thinking you have no worth, maybe thinking, what am I doing? Is this valuable? Is this important? Remember what Revelation 5 says. Christian, you are a kingdom of priests called to praise God. Emmaus wrote, this is for us, a church shaped by definite redemption is not a church of pinheads or doctrinaires that love to fight and argue and duel with swords. This is gospel comfort for struggling sinners like us. A church shaped by this loves to worship God. A church shaped by this is humble before God. A church shaped by this is confident in the face of trials by the Spirit of God, fervent in love for each other, and steadfast to press on. Why is that? Because who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge against you, Christian? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Keep us from the danger of pride and presumption. Keep us from thinking, I've got all this, I'm okay. Keep us as well from temptation to self-pity. And when we are discouraged, Lord, we don't want to live in the ditch of pride or self-pity. We want to live in the freedom of the joy of the assurance of salvation we have by faith in Jesus. And we want, oh God, by your spirit, for this to impact our life together. That we would love one another fervently. That you would bring this about because we don't have this in ourselves. God, hear our prayer. Have mercy on us for Jesus' sake. Amen.